teaching singing is different than teaching another instrument because with guitar and piano you can go okay right there that's c that's always going to be c you can always just just push it right there right with your voice there are so many variables
and welcome to the weekly review. It is Friday, April 1st, 2016. It's April Fool's Day. I never was really too into April Fool's Day, mostly because people play jokes on each other and lie to each other all the time throughout the year, and a lot of it is uh, elected officials who do that. So a, a day for folks to really to get away with it, even as a joke, I feel is kind of missing the point. And I'd probably enjoy it more if folks were, were more honest and kinder to each other. So that's my, my stance on April Fool's Day. Though it's, it's always interesting to see what people post online, uh, people going on trips, people getting pregnant, people getting married, all these things that turn out not to be true. Um, but making, making it at the expense of, of other folks. So that's where I'm coming from. I had some interesting dreams last night. Uh, The police were in my dreams, and uh, they were kind of coming after people on Valencia Street. And there was a police station on Valencia, and the whole street was lined, and people weren't allowed to to walk on Valencia in my dream. And I was with some friends of mine from New York, and we were like, well, you know, one option is to go another route, and then the other option was just to, like, walk um, as, as we were walking. And we decided to do that, and we decided to sit down, and things ended up okay. Even though the, the cop, the cops had like lined the streets in my dream, and it was a little bit discouraging. It's like, oh, even in my dream, uh, there's a police state happening. Even in uh, an alternate reality, uh, there were police. And one thing that also happened, though, uh, aside from that, was that I was in another place. I think it was it was San Francisco. As I, I, I usually end up in New York in my dreams because I miss it a lot. I think, and there. Uh, there was like a, a scuffle had had taken place, and there were some either either law enforcement, um, but they were they were like harassing people um, and beating people up, and then people kind of turned against them and then started fighting back. And as in this, and someone had revealed that he was uh, there's some some form of military, I don't know what, but was not acting and was like not acting appropriately. And people, this is again in my dream, and then people started like fighting back against the, the these folks who were improperly treating people. And uh, I was on the sidelines, and I was like, should I engage in this? Like, I'm not, I don't like, in, I don't engage in violence. I don't really uh, like for self defense. I can understand it, um, but what do I, what do I do in the situation if I see it happening? If it's someone who has caused someone harm. Do I want to punish them? And I was just able to watch because other folks said other folks did it. Other folks were able to kind of take care of that. So in a way, it was me being able to watch something happen and uh, not necessarily take part in it and realize that that was okay and not not uh, participate in any of the violence. So that wasn't really a <laughs> very fun dream. I haven't had very fun dreams lately, but it was good to know that folks were kind of stepping up and perhaps that, re- that uh, represents a part of me that is able to, to fight back um, when there is injustice. And also just to know when to pick one's battles, because there's a lot of battles th- that that are happening right now, and there's so much that, that's happening, and one wants to, or I want to, like, step up a lot, and I feel overwhelmed quite a bit because there's a lot of injustice out there. So part of that reason is just doing the show and just talking about what's happening. Maybe it's passive in some way, but I feel getting the word out and getting information out is another way of educating folks and waking people up. A lot of folks are awake and into what's happening and what has happened in the world, and some folks are not. 
and I, I get that ignorance is bliss. I get that. I sometimes wish I was like that and I can put my head in the sand and just pretend that uh, atrocities aren't happening, but oh, too late for that, I guess. So there's, I'm going to start off with one story. Oh, and I'll start off with by saying that the music that we start off the show with, the first is a song by Chuck Prophet called Alex Nieto, and uh, you can buy it, and all the proceeds go to the Justice for Alex Nieto and his family. And following that was Greg Dooley, who I'm a big fan of, and saw him in concert. And uh, some folks, he's got a pretty big following. He was in the Afghan Wigs and Twilight Singers, and uh, he's a pretty great performer. So many folks recorded his shows and shared them online, which is pretty awesome. So I'm going to be playing music from that throughout the show. Also, yesterday was a Transgender Day of Visibility, which is cool. And uh, it was nice. It's a nice alternate to the Transgender Day of Remembrance, in which we remember the folks who have died that year. So this is kind of on the flip side, where it's like, oh, hey, we're here. This is who we are. And I went to a couple of events that were really awesome and inspiring. Now I'm starting to wake up. Uh, the first one was in Oakland um, at Oscar Grant Plaza. And it was sponsored and put together through GSA. So they had a lot of youth, like queer youth. Um, uh, kids in high school and junior high who were speaking and like I went up to speak for a little bit because they had an open mic and I was like all right sure and realized I really didn't I didn't have too much to add to the conversation because these these young folks really knew what was up and that was really really inspiring and it was cool like meeting these kids who were like 15 and 16 and I was saying oh well, I started a, a, a gay straight alliance at my high school in 1997 so that's before some of these kids were born and I definitely wasn't quite aware of my own trans identity at that time. I was just more like, oh, I'm gay or bi or somewhere along those those lines. And it was really um, refreshing and uh, heartwarming to see these young people who had a sense of who they were and felt confident enough to speak and to be there and to self-identify like that. So in a way, there has been progress made absolutely in that in that regard and organizationally speaking as well. So that was really reassuring. And I was like, cool, that's that's awesome. I can't really add much to this discussion and I'm glad this is happening. And I'm, not to say that youth don't face discrimination and difficulties, especially um, in, in certain parts of the country and parts of the world. Um, however, it was great to see some young folks here in the Bay Area who were out and uh, living their lives authentically. That was really, really awesome. And then uh, at Soma Arts, they had a, a presentation event, uh, and they had a few performers like Our Lady J, and they had folks from Fresh Meat, uh, Brianna Sinclair, uh, who's an opera singer, um, a lot of performers, and it was really great to see so many people and just to, to see familiar faces and to see people honored and to not feel alone, which is something that I, I know I feel a lot of the time, uh, even when I'm around allies or folks who, I guess, I don't know if they consider themselves allies, but one can still feel very isolated and alienated. And it's really, it's something else to be in a room, like a room full of hundreds of people uh, that are also trans. It's something that I can't quite describe uh, how reassuring it feels and of course, there's them that that paranoia of 
being hurt in that kind of space because so many of us are, are together. A friend of mine had vocalized that on Facebook, a fear of going to a, a space like that, um, that everything was, everything was fine and everything was good. And it felt very healing to be in a space like that and to be surrounded by comrades and to, to not feel so alone, even if it's like this one, you know, one day, one day out of the year, uh, to be, to be with, with other folks and to not necessarily face that, that judgment. So, and I, I recognize I go through the world and folks don't necessarily know I'm trans unless they've already talked to me or unless I, I talk about it myself. Um, but even, even that, that doesn't mean that I, I still think about it obviously every day. And it's something that's maybe not necessarily seen. And because it's not visual, it doesn't necessarily mean it's not happening. And in some ways, uh, it's, it doesn't mean it's, it's not there and it's tricky to, uh, speak up in, in certain conversations if folks don't expect me to have that perspective and people expect me to act a certain way or to assume that I've been socialized as male and the way that some men act, um, is really, I think pretty gross. If you look at the, the world as it is and to assume that I'm going to t take part in that, I think is just having to combat that and to present new ways of being is can be it can be difficult and so on the surface things might look okay or I might feel like I fit in and I do recognize that based on how my body looks I have access to certain spaces it's once I get into those spaces though that uh, the work has to begin in terms of how I can accurately communicate who I am and how I view the world and also part of it is being mistaken for someone who's a lot younger than I am and how people view me and how to, how and when to correct people and then not to. So that's just something that I have been finding the words for and wanting to communicate because it is, it is tricky and it's not like things just go away once, um, one there's it's it's never over it's never quite over um whether someone decides to do things medically or not it's never it's just an ongoing process and coming out is an ongoing process and there are folks who choose to be stealth and i respect that and there are folks who don't have that option and that's and that's one of the reasons that i feel the need to be as outspoken as i am <sighs> so with that being said let's uh how I like to do segues and I like to end on something humorous too. I'm overall feeling pretty, uh, pretty mellow today, which is good. So uh, I'll skip the segue and perhaps later on we'll, we'll have some good segues as we, as we get into more stories. Uh, there's something else I was going to get to, but we'll just start here. This is a story I wanted to talk about last week and forgot about it. So there's just a lot going on in the world and it's important to, to look at history and history is not really necessarily taught accurately. And oh, that's something else is that CUNY is now, uh, Governor Cuomo has agreed to fund, fully fund CUNY, which is cool. However, I would think one, uh, that's the uh, City University of New York. Um, so it's great. Everyone deserves free education. Absolutely. My one concern about this is that if it's one person funding it, they also control what can be taught. And I feel like that's a, it's kind of like a catch 22. 
and I feel that in a lot of a lot of my friends who've been to, to grad school and folks who've worked in academia, the, the politics of it all seem to be very contradictory to the idea of education, is that one still has to follow certain rules that may not be for the greater good, and that can be very complicated. So thinking about that a lot. And in terms of talking about history, what's actually discussed, uh, and it's April Fool's Day, so we got folks, you know, pulling pranks and and making jokes and all these things that aren't necessarily funny or helpful. And meanwhile, we've had folks in office for a very long time, people in positions of power who have lied to the public and destroyed lives based on this and caused a lot of fear and a lot of misery. And that's probably why I can't really enjoy April Fool's Day very much is because uh, we're not necessarily always being fooled, but there's a lot of folks in power who, who do that and they get paid for it and they maintain their power and they destroy lives. And this is one such example of that. And this article comes from Vox, uh, Policy and Politics. Uh, Nixon official says, a real reason for the drug war was to criminalize black people and hippies. And this was updated by uh, German Lopez on March 23rd. Ah, the war on drugs. Is it a genuine public health crusade or an attempt to carry out what author Michelle Alexander characterizes as the new Jim Crow? A new report by Dan Baum for Harper's Magazine suggests the latter. Specifically, Baum refers to a quote from John Ehrlichman, who served as domestic policy chief for President Richard Nixon when the administration declared its war on drugs in 1971. According to Baum, Ehrlichman said in 1994 that the drug war was a ploy to undermine Nixon's political opposition, meaning black people and critics of the Vietnam War. At the time, I was writing a book about the, po- the politics of drug prohibition. I started to ask Ehrlichman a series of earnest, wonky questions that he impatiently waved away. You want to know what this is really about? He asked with the bluntness of a man who, after public disgrace and a stretch, of federal, and a stretch in federal prison, had little left to protect. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies the anti-war left, and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be, either against, to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leader, leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. This is an incredibly blunt, shocking response, one with troubling implications for the 45-year-old war on drugs. It's possible Ehrlichman wasn't being honest, given that he reportedly felt bitter and betrayed by Nixon after he spent time in prison over the Watergate scandal. Nixon also very much despised drugs, which likely played a role in his policies beyond political goals. And his drug czar, Jerome Jaffe, strongly pushed for treating drugs as a health issue, not solely a criminal matter, as Ehrlichman suggested. But the claim of racial prejudice is not implausible. Although black Americans aren't more likely to use or sell drugs, they're much more likely to be arrested for them. And when black people are convicted of drug charges, they generally face longer prison sentences for the same crimes, according to a 2012 report from the U.S. Sentencing Commission. 
And they have a chart here of past month illicit drug use from the 2013 National Survey on Drug Use and Health. And whites are 9.5% and blacks at 10.5%. Drug-related arrests per 100,000 residents of each race, uh, whites at 332 and black at 879. Ehrlichman claimed this was a goal of the drug war, not an unintended consequence. And Baum cites this as one of the many reasons to end the drug war once and for all. Ending the war on drugs doesn't have to be a binary choice between prohibition and legalization. Uh, Baum's argument, drug prohibition began with poor intentions. It has contributed to terrible consequences, racial disparities in the justice system, and drug-fueled violence around the world, and it has failed to significantly curtail drug abuse and trafficking. So we should try a new approach and legalize and regulate drugs. But in doing this, Baum glosses over a few options. Even if it's true that the drug war was launched on faulty reasons, that doesn't mean it hasn't led to some benefits. And if those benefits weren't worth, aren't worth the costs of the current mo model of prohibition, there are alternatives to pulling back drug prohibition besides legalization. As I've written before, the drug war does likely prevent some drug use. One study by John Calkins, a drug policy expert at Carnegie Mellon University, suggested that prohibition multiplies the price of hard drugs like cocaine by as much as 10 times. And illicit drugs obviously aren't available through easy means. One can't just walk into a CVS and buy heroin. So the drug war is likely stopping some drug use. Calkins estimates that the legalization could lead uh, hard drug abuse to triple, although he told me it could go much higher. Uh, America's latest drug epidemic provides some evidence for Calkins' claims. In the past couple decades, doctors loosened access to very addictive and potentially deadly opioid painkillers. Painkiller abuse exploded, leading not just to more overdose deaths, but to people trying other opioids, such as heroin, and overdosing on those as well. So more access led to more abuse and deaths. Does this mean the war on drugs as it currently is fought is worth it? Not necessarily. It's a matter of weighing the pros and cons of the current model of drug prohibition. So maybe the drug war reduces drug use, but it also enables and reinforces the justice system's biases against minority Americans. And it perpetuates a black market for drugs that fuels violence in the U.S. and around the world, particularly in Mexico. But there are options to draw down the war on drugs without legalization. Uh, me personally, I think I'm all for legalization. Uh, the U.S. could decriminalize, remove jail time and other criminal penalties for other possession, but not sales, and emphasize uh, prevention and treatment, as Portugal has done. It would allow us to provide injection sites for heroin users to provide a safe space, a safe place, to use the drug, as Canada, Switzerland, and several others have done. It could allow for the medical use of some drugs, such as psychedelics, absolutely, as some researchers have pushed for. These are steps countries and states could take without legalizing drugs. Baum does, however, acknowledge that even if a country does legalize, there are various ways to do it. Governments could spend much, much more on prevention and treatment programs alongside legalization to deal with potential wave of new drug users. They could require and regulate licenses to buy drugs, as some states do with guns, or they can buy, ban private, for-profit sales of drugs, limiting greedy companies' abilities to market and sell the drugs no matter the consequence, as tobacco companies have done to get Americans hooked on cigarettes, to still very deadly effects. None of these policies would wholly eliminate drug abuse, drug deaths, or drug-related violence and crime, but drug policy is often about picking the best out of the available bad options, rather than picking the perfect solution. Still, there are far more options than prohibition and legalization with, and different drugs with all sorts of risks likely merit different policies. 
But it's going to be very difficult to get the right balance of policies if the debate is framed as deciding between only legalization and prohibition. Huh. So, uh, there, there is that. And I'm, I'm of the mind of people should have every right to, to put in their bodies what they, what they want to put in. And also, it's just so ironic that guns happen to be so legal and easily accessible, yet in some places, uh, cannabis and mushrooms and acid, which are all I find to be very helpful substances, are illegal and can set you, get you sent to jail. Yet a weapon is somehow, uh, that's somehow more accessible. I think that's really ridiculous and says a lot. So... Uh, along those lines, uh, people should have every right to put in their body what they want to put in their body. Moving along, uh, so this also goes goes along the line with people in positions of power lying. And this should not come as a shock to people who are awake. And this comes from the San Francisco Examiner, and uh, this is... Uh, this came out today. A criminal case reveals new racist text sent by more SFPD officers. Huh. Okay, and this was written by uh, Jonah Owen Lamb. Uh, New allegations of racism among officers in the San Francisco Police Department have emerged from a criminal case the San Francisco Examiner has learned. We were in the middle of an investigation and we discovered new racist and homophobic text messages that were being used, District Attorney George Gascon told the Examiner on Thursday of the text messages. Gascon said there are at least five officers involved, but the names of the officers and the content of the text messages were not immediately available. The text messages, however, apparently mocked the public outcry around an earlier text message scandal. Last year, a group of San Francisco police officers were shown to have sent racist, bigoted, and homophobic text messages to one another from 2001 to 2012. The text emerged out of a federal police corruption trial and resulted in Chief Greg Sir recommending that eight officers be fired and the rest be punished. The new allegations came come from a review of roughly 5,000 pages of text messages that are part of a criminal case, which Gascon did not name. The texts were sent from 2014 to 2015 by five officers who were not party to the scandal surrounding the earlier racist texts. The N-word was used many times. There are, they are of the same nature as what we saw last year, said Gascon, who was notified about the discovery this week. These officers are completely unconnected with the 14 we saw last year. Gascon told Chief Greg Sir about the new racist text Wednesday so that the officers involved can be removed from public contact while an investigation is underway. The police department did not immediately return a call for comment. The district attorney's office is also planning to notify defense counsel in cases involving the five officers. We still don't know the full scope of the messages, Gascon said. While Gascon would not reveal many details in the ongoing investigation, he did say the phones were private. Whether they were used on duty is unclear. The allegations call into question claims made by some that the department has no issues with race and some and come amid numerous police reform efforts, some of which were spurred directly as a result of previous revelations of bigotry in the ranks. No one can say with a straight face now these issue, that these new text messages, that these new text messages, that they are isolated, said Gascon. Gascon and a blue ribbon panel he formed last year to look into poli- police bias have been under attack from the police officers union, which has said that there are no issues of widespread racial bias in the department. Uh, more recently, POA leaders gave statements to their lawyers that they heard Gascon allegedly make racist remarks while he was police chief, the job he held prior to becoming district attorney. Uh, Gascon called that claim a lie. And this reminds me of the chant, the whole damn system is guilty as hell. 
All right, we'll be playing some music and then back uh, with some more stories. Welcome back. Here's an article. I like to read articles that are based on studies that explain a lot of human behavior and can make sense of it. And this one definitely hits close to home. This is from Engage. Uh, yes. And the article title is called Angry Rebels Are More Compassionate Than Nice People. And I really appreciate that. And this was written by uh, Eileen Chim. And this came out in June of 2014. Um... Psychologists have uncovered a troubling feature of people who seem nice all the time. 
1961, curious about a person's willingness to obey an authority figure, social psychologist Stanley Milgram began trials on his now famous experiment. In it, he tested how far a subject would go, electrically shocking a stranger, actually an actor faking the pain, simply because they were following orders. Some subjects, Milgram found, would follow directives until the person was dead. The News. A new Milgram-like experiment published in June 2015 in the Journal of Person Personality has taken this idea to the next step by trying to understand which kinds of people are more or less willing to obey these kinds of orders. What researchers discovered was surprising. Those who are described as agreeable, conscientious personalities are more likely to follow orders and deliver electric shocks that they believe can harm innocent people, while more contrarian, less agreeable personalities are more likely to refuse to hurt others. The Methodology and Findings For an eight-month period, the researchers interviewed the study participants to gauge their social personality, as well as their personal history <coughs> and political leanings. When they matched this idea to the participants' behavior during the experiment, a distinct pattern emerged. People who were normally friendly followed orders because they didn't want to upset others, while those who were described as unfriendly stuck up for themselves. The irony is that a personality disproportion normally seen as antisocial disagreeableness may actually be linked to pro-social behavior, writes, social, so, writes social, so, Psychology Today's Kenneth Worthy. This connection seems to arise from a willingness to sacrifice one's popularity a bit to act in a moral and just way toward other people, animals, or the environment at large. Popularity, in the end, may be more a sign of social graces and perhaps a desire to fit in than any kind of moral superiority. The study also found that people holding left-wing political views are less willing to hurt others. One particular group held steady and refused destructive orders. Women who had previously participated in rebellious political activism, such as strikes or occupying a factory. Uh, and this is from the, the peer-reviewed article. Uh, personality predicts obedience in a milgram uh, paradigm. And this is uh, Lauren Begu, uh, Jean-Léon Beauvoir, Delaire, Cobert, uh, Dominique Oberlet, Johan Lepage, and Aaron A. Duke. This is from the Journal of Personality in June of 2013. The Abstract. I'm really digging this article. The study investigates how obedience in a Milgram-like experiment is predicted by inter-individual differences. Participants were 35 males and 31 females ages aged 26 to 54 from the general population who were contacted by phone eight months after their participation in a study transposing Milgram's obedience paradigm to the context of a fake television game show. Interviews were presented as opinion polls with no stated ties to the earlier experiment. Personality was assessed by the five-factor model questionnaire. Um, political orientation and social activism were also measured. Results confirmed hypothesis that conscientiousness <coughs> and agreeableness would be associated with willingness to administer high-intensity electric shocks to a victim. Political orientation and social activism were also related to obedience. Our results provide empirical evidence suggesting that individual differences in personality and political variables matter in the explanation of obedience to authority. Discussion. 
The present research makes at least three significant contributions to the literature. This is the first study showing that individual obedience in a Milgram-like paradigm can be predicted using the five-factor model of personality. As expected, conscientiousness and agreeableness predicted the intensity of electric shocks administered to the victim. Second, we showed that disobedience was influenced by political orientation, with left-wing political ideology being associated with decreased obedience. Third, we showed that women who are willing to participate in rebellious political activities, such as going on strike or occupying a factory, administered lower shocks. For more than 50 years, social and personality psychology have tried to unravel the role of personality in obedient behavior. Our results provide new empirical evidence showing that individual differences in agreeableness, conscientiousness, political orientation, and social activism matter. Not only evil behavior such as destructive obedience may be indeed be banal in a sense of not relying on extraordinary cruelty of ideological hate, but it also may be facilitated uh, by dispositions that are consensually desirable elsewhere with family and friends, as Hannah Arendt uh, proposed over 50 years ago. Although our results suggest that adaptive traits in the interpersonal domain may be maladaptive in context involving destructive authority, they also suggest that some behaviors may disrupt social functioning, such as political activism, may express and even strengthen individual dispositions that are both useful and essential to the whole society, at least in some critical moments. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty awesome, and there are plenty of times I feel I have... I think about this a lot, like where I, where I would or could be in my life, uh, success or career-wise, however one wants to label that. And there are times I have just stuck to my guns, as it were, and realize I've been either punished for it or not, uh, not like I haven't been up, up to where I could be um, for either refusing to, to kiss ass or be around people I don't want to be around. And uh it's that's I guess the price that that one has to pay in in some respects, and this article makes me feel better in in recognizing that um, how just the with the mob mentality and how a lot of folks go around and demonizing people and uh, because I think it's the right thing to do and it doesn't really help anyone. Speaking of which, I've got some other news that's mm, I think it's it's more or less positive, I would say. And this comes from the Gay Star News. So there's, of course, mentioned last week. I'm going to have some water, actually, while I uh, get the story started and play some music in the meantime. And then we'll get started with the next, uh, the next story.
Sylvia Rivera from 1973. I thought that was really important to to share uh, that video and just to see that although that was 43 years ago, not a lot has changed when we look at the the gay community or queer community. Even to call it that, I think, is maybe a fallacy. Um, when folks fighting for marriage and then not really 
talking about other members of the community, especially the T, um, when we've got these laws that are being passed in in North Carolina, now in Mississippi. And I'll be reading about that a little bit. I was going to read about the Mississippi. Mississippi's also doing the similar thing that we talked about last week. Uh, just really reprehensible bills. Uh, no, no, there's no separation between church and state, and they're using their religion to uh, make an excuse for their bigotry, which is disgusting and going to cause a lot of violence. And so people are at least standing up to it, which is which is good. And I'll browse a little bit here. So there's a religious freedom bill which has passed in Mississippi, and there've been a lot of thankfully in North. Carolina, there have been a lot of folks who are going to protest. Uh, mayor Ed Lee, it's kind of weird to be like on the side of the mayor who many of us feel has kind of abandoned the city and not really acted in a way to help the, the residents. So he's called a, a boycott. And um, I believe Governor Cuomo in New York did as well. And a lot of companies have as well. And Rob Reiner stated that uh, he was refusing to bring any work to North Carolina. So a lot of folks have stepped up to say they're going to boycott uh, North Carolina uh, until they, they reverse that decision. And the flip, the, the side with, the, with Mississippi is that there's a lot less business in Mississippi than there is in North Carolina. So how does one boycott a place that one does not spend a lot of money or, or time in? That's going to be interesting. So I'll just read a little bit about this and then I'll get to a an article which just really explains how ludicrous, I mean, we all already know how ludicrous this is and disgusting this is, um, but I'll just read a little bit just to help inform. Uh, the Mississippi State, Mississippi Senate approved a sweeping anti-LGBT religious freedom bill late Wednesday. The bill uh, heads back to the House for technical reasons, but will soon be sent to the desk of Republican Governor Phil Bryant, who has expressed support for it. The Senate voted 31 to 17 to approve House Bill uh, 1523, known as the Protecting Freedom of Conscience from Government Discrimination Act, which would allow individuals, businesses, government employees, nonprofits, and other entities to discriminate against not only LGBT people, but also anyone who's had extramarital sex, oh my gosh, based on their sincerely held religious beliefs. Um, I'm going to assume that most people are either LGBT and or have had extramarital sex. I think that's the majority of the population, but that's just my guess. Uh, this legislation moves Mississippi backward, undermining equality for its residents and jeopardizing its ability to attract and retain fair-minded businesses, uh, HRC President Chad Griffin uh, said in a statement prior to the bill's passage, Governor Bryant should be paying close attention to the backlash against dis discrimination in Georgia, uh, where Governor Nathan Deal vetoed a terrible anti-LGBT bill, and in North Carolina, where fair-minded people and the broader business community are calling on state leaders to repudiate and repeal the discriminatory law passed last week. Mississippi's economy and its reputation hang in the balance. And they have a few tweets here. One says, deplorable legislation, state of Mississippi, bloody draconian, a disgrace to our nation of freedom. And uh, Ben Needham, director of Project One America, an LGBT advocacy group in the Deep South, told BuzzFeed News that HB 1523 is probably the worst religious freedom bill to date. GOP Senator Jennifer Branning, who introduced the bill, said it was drafted, and I'm sure she's got something up her sleeve. I'm sure, she, I mean, I feel like with all these folks who bring these bills, you know, people in glass houses should not throw stones. There's, they're kind of hiding something 
that they themselves don't want to deal with or else why would you bring a bill that's going to criminalize people for existing uh who introduced the bill said it was drafted in response to the u.s supreme court's decision to fate in fate to fit in favor of same-sex marriage last june and again this goes to the idea of the backlash and that's what many folks were afraid of that putting all this energy into marriage which doesn't necessarily help everyone uh the people who are going to suffer the most from this are going to be like trans folks and people who are going to be uh, not protected by bills that people are going to make in response to the passage of same-sex marriage. Uh, this isn't a bill to allow any type of discrimination at all. Okay, that doesn't make any sense. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite, Branding said. It's about protecting the religious freedom of those who don't feel that they can, they can with a clean conscience, assist a same-sex couple. Wow. Democratic Senator Derek Simmons, who's black, spoke against the bill invoking Mississippi's long history of racial discrimination. We can, uh, can we afford, with Mississippi's dark past, can we afford in 2016 to pass anything that can be construed as discrimination, Simmons said? People are actually taken brutally from their homes, and they were killed based upon what they were considered to be. This is my religious belief based on we don't want any mixing of the races. Uh, Irish Lass, that's the, their Twitter name, says, uh, I'm so embarrassed for the state since it doesn't have the decency to be embarrassed for itself. A Democratic Senator John Horn, uh, also black, cited three Bible verses that implore slaves to obey their earthly masters. These are examples of how religion and how the Bible was used to justify slavery, slavery Horn said. So what I'm saying to you today is that religion isn't always right about things, uh, isn't always just about things, because people, you, people use religion. We don't need to put another stain on Mississippi. HB 1523 would bar the state from taking action against anyone who, who, who discriminates based on their belief that marriage should be between one man and one woman, that sexual relations should be reserved to such a union, or that male and female refer to someone's immutable, this is in quotation marks, immutable biological sex as objectively determined by anatomy and genetics at time of birth. Um, Well, if we're going to also just go at time of birth, everyone would just be babies all the time and not to think that people actually evolve. All right. Uh, more from HRC. Um, Taxpayer-funded uh, faith-based organizations could refuse to recognize the marriages of same-sex couples for provision of critical services, including emergency shelter, deny children in need of loving homes, placement with LGBT families, including a child's the child's own family member, and refuse to sell or rent a for-profit home to an LGBT person, even if the organization receives government funding. As introduced, HB 1523 would also give foster families the freedom to subject an LGBTQ child to a dangerous practice of conversion therapy and subject a pregnant, unwed girl to abuse without, without fear of government intervention or license suspension. It would even allow individuals to refuse to carry out the terms of a state contract for the provision of counseling services to all eligible individuals, including veterans, based on the counselor's beliefs about LGBT people or single mothers. Furthermore, schools, employers, and service providers could implement sex-specific dress and grooming standards, ew, as well as refuse transgender people access to the appropriate sex-segregated facilities consistent with their gender identity, all in conflict with the United States Department of Justice enforcement of federal law. HB 1523 even legalizes Kim Davis-style discrimination by allowing government employees to abdicate their duties and refuse to license or solemnize marriages for LGBT people. And someone else has tweeted, Seriously, Mississippi, what are, you so afra- what are you so afraid of? Calm the F down. The gays don't even think you're cute. 
So in, in response to all of this fear-mongering, uh, the, the real people to be afraid of are the reg- Republican legislators. They're the ones to be afraid of. And this article comes from Gay Star News. Uh, Republicans are the ones you should be worried about, not trans people. And this came out on March 29th, and this is written by uh, Nigel Tan. So far, statistics show no trans person arrested for sexual misconduct in a public bathroom. But, surprise, surprise, or not, three Republican lawmakers had been arrested for doing very naughty things in there. Who are they? Well, the guys at New Now Next didn't have to dig too far into recent history to find these bathroom-seeking politicians. Back in 1981, Mississippi... Congressman John Hinson was arrested for engaging in oral sex with a male staffer in the House of Representatives bathroom. In 2007, Idaho Republican Larry Craig was arrested in the bathroom of Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport for soliciting sex from an undercover police officer. Ew, because it's a cop. Uh, And also, I can't imagine that being one's job to... Anyway, uh, also in 2007, Florida State Representative Bob Allen was arrested after he agreed to give an undercover police officer $20 for oral sex in the men's room of a public park. And then there's a tweet. Time to remind folks that there have been more U.S. senators arrested for sexual misconduct in bathrooms than trans people. Well, indeed. The fear-mongering tactics used by the U.S. Republican legislators to single-cut and punish transgender people for using bathrooms that correspond to their gender identity appear to be working in states like Kansas, North Carolina, and South Dakota, as covered by Gay Star News this month. Last year, other states such as Arizona, Florida, Texas, and Kentucky were also looking at enacting so-called bathroom bills targeting, targeted at transgender people, reports Mike. In an interview with BuzzFeed in February 2015, Republican State Representative Frank Artiles, who sponsored the single-sex public facilities bill HB583 in Florida, commented, While I understand there are transgender people who want to use bathrooms however they want to feel, this is irrelevant to me. Uh, when, asked the na- when asked to name a case where a trans person had threatened public bathroom safety, neither Artiles nor his staff could give evidence. And when asked if he believes a transgender woman is a woman, Artiles replied, I am not going to get into that. I have not spent much time thinking about that. Of course he hasn't. Evidently, some of U.S. legislators have a whole lot of homework to do before they can make better decisions with regards to what's right, to what rights should be given to the people and what rights should be controlled. Well, since we're on the topic of hypocrisy, here's an extensive list of the biggest sex offenders coming from the U.S. Republican Party. Oh, and one more person to add to the list, Alabama Governor Robert Bentley. So let's take a, this, take a look at this list here and see um, what we have. All right, so meet the religious rights 20 biggest sex hypocrites. And this comes from Raw Story, and this was written by Alex Anderson. And this is uh, from 2015. Uh, The Republican Party wasn't always synonymous with far-right Christian fundamentalism. The late five-term Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater, who was considered the epitome of the arch-conservative when he ran for president against Democrat LBJ in 1964, had no use for the religious right. Goldwater famously said that the religious right scares the hell out of me, and he has said out of, and he said of the of Reverend Jerry Falwell, all good good Christians should kick him in the ass. Wow, it's funny that I longingly look for days when the politicians would actually distance themselves from the religious right. 
It isn't that Goldwater abandoned right-wing ideas and became passionately liberal progressive. Rather, the Republican Party moved way to the right of him on social issues. From the early 1980s on, the GOP has pushed an agenda of militant social conservatism. And the more the GOP became a party of far-right Christian fundamentalism, the more Republican politicians and the evangelists who supported them became involved in major sex scandals. Of course, the Democratic Party has had plenty of sex scandals as well, but the most Democrats who have become involved in major sex scandals, Bill Clinton, John Edwards, Anthony Weiner, Gary Hart, among others, had not marketed themselves as extreme moralists. Post-1970s Republicans all too often have been self-righteous, preachy, overbearing, holier-than-thou witch hunters, and in some cases, the ones who screamed the loudest about how godly they were uh, turned out to be the exact opposite. Below are the 20 top socially conservative uh, hypocrites of the religious right, and they have uh, Jimmy Swaggart, who is a Pentecostal televangelist um, and the cousin of Jerry Lee Lewis. And uh, there's another one, uh, Laura Schlesinger, you can name a lot of these names, uh, Newt Gingrich. And they have a history of all these folks here. I'll do Senator David Vitter. He's a senator. Uh, Senator David Vitter of Louisiana is infamous for his extreme social conservatism and for pandering to the Christian right. Vitter has supported a constitutional amendment that would ban gay marriage nationwide, although he claims to support states' rights. Vitter makes an exception when it comes to gay marriage. Promoted abstinence-only sex education, called for school board meetings in Louisiana to open with prayers, and repeatedly preached against abortion. Vitter loves to play the red state, blue state card, saying that he represents socially conservative Louisiana values rather than secular Massachusetts values. But in 2007, it was revealed that Vitter had been a client of the Washington, D.C. escort service operated by uh, Deborah Jean Palfrey, a.k.a. Uh, the D.C. madam. Uh, Vitter admitted he had cheated on his wife with a, with a sex worker, um, but no criminal charges were filed because of the statute of limitations. Despite his blatant hypocrisy, Vitter was reelected to the Senate in 2010. We've got a few more people here. Rush Limbaugh, Larry Craig, uh, Ted Haggard, uh, Henry Hyde. Ooh. Okay, uh, those who live in glass houses should not throw stones. But in the late, but the late Illinois Republic, Republican Henry Hyde, who spent 32 years in the House of Representatives and died in 2007, threw plenty of stones. <coughs> Figuratively speaking, during the impeachment proceedings against Bill Clinton, Clinton, Hyde insisted, had disgraced the presidency by committing adultery and lying about it under oath. But it turned out that Hyde had his own history of adultery. In 1960s, Hyde was married with four sons when he had an affair with a woman named Sherry Snodgrass who had three children with Fred Snodgrass, her husband at the time. In a 1998 interview with Salon.com, Fred Snodgrass denounced Hyde as a hypocrite who broke up my family. Hyde described his affair with Sherry as a youthful indiscretion, although he was 41 when the affair started. So then there's uh, Jim Baker and James West. Um, James West, the late Republican James West, who died in 2006, was a champion of anti-gay causes during his years in Washington state politics, first in the Washington State Senate, then as mayor of Spokane. West promoted, among other things, a blatantly discriminatory bill that would have prohibited gay men and women from working for schools, daycare centers, and certain state agencies. But in 2004, West was caught in a sex scandal when the Spokane, Spokane Review conducted a sting operation and alleged that West, in a gay online chat room, offered a possible city hall intern to someone he thought was an 18-year-old man. In reality, the 18-year-old was a private investigator hired by the, Spok- by the Spokesman Review. The Spokane County Republican Party called for West's resignation, and in 2005, he lost his position as mayor when voters opted to recall him. Next, John Ensign. 
During the years he represented Nevada in the U.S. Senate and before that the House of Representatives, Republican John Ensign was held in high regard by the Christian Coalition, focused on the family and other Christian right theocrats. Staunchly anti-abortion, he was a Pentecostal who considered himself born again. He voted in favor of constitutional ban on gay marriage, and he was active in the Promise Keepers. The Christian Coalition gave him a 100% rating in 2003, while the Human Rights Campaign gave him a rating of only 11% in 2006. Like many other Republicans, Ensign called for Bill Clinton's resignation in 1998, saying that an adulterer was unfit to be president. But as much as Ensign liked to talk about the sanctity of marriage, he didn't practice what he preached. Ensign ended up resigning from the Senate in 2011 because of the scandal surrounding his adulterous affair with Cynthia Hampton, the wife of Douglas Hampton, an administrative aide in Ensign's office, and a close personal friend. Oof. Next. Uh, Michael, there's ongoing lists. I'm sure it's like a clown car. Just the, they, they keep on piling out. And there's really one thing to think about, of course, is our culture, American culture's just uh, repression and lack of wanting to acknowledge sex, especially gay sex. Uh, the idea that folks are so repressed and so upset about it and can't deal with it, their own, their own, their own selves, that they would call out, uh, they, they think that other people can't do it. Meanwhile, they, they themselves are doing it. Um, I think that's just, that just says a lot. And also just the idea that people can be caught thinking about Larry Craig and how there are, I guess, police officers whose job it is to trap people by having i mean the fact that sex is illegal in some ways like that consensual sex is illegal in some ways i should say is really says a lot about our culture and no wonder things are so messed up if people can't even uh people feel like their own desires their own consensual desires are wrong that says a lot and if these people are in congress no wonder we're in such a no wonder it's such a shit show so let's read more about these folks who are hypocrites and in, in positions of power okay michael d Duvall. i haven't heard of him before uh that's i sounded sarcastic but it's sincere i really don't know who he is let's read about him as a member of the california yeah california state assembly republican michael d Duvall had a reputation for being an outspoken social conservative Duvall opposed abortion, and if you oppose abortion, like if you don't think women have the right to choose what to do with their bodies, uh, you can go fuck yourself. Um, That's my own statement. Um, As much as he opposed gay marriage, and he insisted that heterosexual marriage had to be protected because it was the backbone of America. But in 2009, Duvall not only admitted to cheating on his wife, he bragged about it. During a lull in a appropriations committee meeting, Duvall told fellow California State Assembly member Jeff Miller that he had been cheating on his wife with two different women, one of them a lobbyist. Of course, of course she was a lobbyist. Duvall didn't realize that a microphone was picking up the conversation and his comments, some of which were quite graphic, uh, became a matter of public record. For someone who loved to paint himself as a staunch moralist, Duvall certainly took a great deal of pride in committing adultery. Duvall resigned from the California State Assembly the day after the story broke. Oh, that's great. I really like that one a lot. That one, that one's just mm, great. Next is Bob Allen. Like James West and Larry Craig, Bob Allen is among the Republican politicians who has a history of being anti-gay, but ended up in a gay sex scandal. Oh, if I had a... I had a dime. Uh, Allen supported a lot of anti-gay legislation during the seven years he spent in the Florida House of Representatives. In July 2007, Allen was arrested after offering to pay an undercover police officer. I'm just, I can't wrap my mind around like the undercover officers that their job is to try to 
trick or to try to get folks to have gay sex. It's like a lot of folks just have gay sex anyway. Like why? Anyway. All right. Have to, okay. Offering to pay an undercover police officer 20 bucks if he could perform oral sex on him in a public restroom. You know, if you were to go to like a bathhouse, he could just give a guy a blowjob for free. Anyway, if he could get, perform oral sex or go on Grinder or look it up online. Anyway, uh, if he could perform an oral sex on him in the public restroom where they met, found guilty of solicitation for prostitution, Allen didn't serve any jail time, but was sentenced to six months probation and fined $250. Allen resigned from the Florida House of Representatives shortly after that. Next, Tony Alamo. I've never heard of him before either. Uh, in the 1970s, evangelist, cult leader, Evangelist slash cult leader. Are they, aren't they one in the same, though? Uh, Tony Alamo, a.k.a. Bernie Lazar Hoffman, and his wife Susan made a name for themselves in, in evangelical circles, preaching a far-right version of fire and brimstone fundamentalism. But in the 80s, Alamo's behavior became so bizarre that much of the Christian right distanced itself from him. That must be pretty intense. After his wife's death from cancer in 1982, Alamo put her embalmed body on display for months and insisted that when his congregation raised her from the dead, she would tell them when Jesus Christ would return to earth. And also around that time, Alamo began publishing his conspiracy theories involving the Catholic Church, which he considered the great whore of Babylon and believed was controlling the Soviet Union, Islamic terrorists, and the Reagan administration all at the same time. Initially, Alamo was a Ronald Reagan supporter, although he turned against Reagan when he decided that his administration was pro-Vatican. Of all the reasons to turn against Reagan, that's an interesting one. Uh, the worst, however, was yet to come. In 2009, Alamo was sentenced to 175 years in prison for a long list of charges that included sexual abuse and transporting underage girls across state lines for sexual purposes. Alamo's ex-followers testified in court that he was guilty of numerous acts of pedophilia, including taking an eight-year-old girl to be his wife and, ugh, and having sex with her. Despite a mountain of damning evidence, the sociopathic Alamo has maintained that he is innocent of all the charges he was convicted of and insists that he was framed by the Vatican. Next, uh, again, I really didn't know how long this list was, but we'll just finish them up and play some music and then get into some other other stories. But the, the point is, uh, there's a lot of folks in Congress who have their, their put, they've waved their flag of morals. And then at the end of the day, they're just, they're just sexual people like anyone else. And, you know, do whatever you want to do if it's consensual um, uh, with folks of age. But uh, the fact that they're like, having waving their moral flag is really troublesome and telling people not to i think that's really ugh, really gross oh and numerous republicans were attacking bill clinton in 1998 porn tycoon larry flint was anxious to expose their hypocrisy and offered one million dollars to anyone see we need folks like that we need whistleblowers on these you know these congress people who are anti-gay um who offer okay so okay to offer one he offered $1 million to anyone who could prove that a Republican member of Congress was committing adultery. Flint obtained concrete proof that Representative Bob Livingston of Louisiana had cheated on his wife numerous times. Livingston was among the many Republicans who had demanded Clinton's resignation over the Lewinsky scandal, and Flint was happy to show the public that the Louisiana congressman was very much an adulterer himself. Livingston, who probably would have replaced Gingrich as speaker, as speaker of the House of Representatives had it not been for the sex scandal, resigned from the House. Mark Sanford, I've heard of him. These days, 
Uh, the, all right. There's just a lot of these. There's like a lot of them. There's Mark Sanford. Uh, he's Republican Party for South Carolina. Uh, Lou Barris, um, from the the former head of the Oregon Christian Coalition. Um, oh gosh, Mark Foley from Florida, Republican. Another Republican, Roy Ashburn, uh, had a very anti-gay. I'm gonna guess if he's gay. Let's see. Yep. All right, Republican Roy Ashburn had a very anti-gay voting record when he served in the California State Senate from 2002 to 2010. He organized rallies opposing gay marriage, and he voted against having a day in remembrance of the slain gay rights leader Harvey Milk. In 2010, however, Ashburn was arrested for DUI after leaving a gay nightclub in Sacramento. Ashburn announced that he was gay, and gay activists pointed to have his anti-gay voting record as a classic example of self-hatred. Next, all right, Reverend Michael Hintz, he's uh, the last one here on this list, and he was from, uh, from Des Moines, um, he, was, he, he had a fight against abortion and porn, and he uh, was sexually involved with a 17-year-old girl. There we go. So, <laughs> getting back to the, the previous article, uh, which talked about, it just named like, the, the three senators. Um, yeah, there's a lot more people, and there's 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 that. It's like people in, in glass houses really should not throw stones, and also it just says so much about our our culture that people sh- that people don't feel like they can be gay, and therefore they take it out on on the rest of us. Oh, and there's Alabama Governor Robert Bentley. Let's read about him. Let's see what he did. He's a uh, okay. Uh, Alabama's anti-gay governor caught in extramarital scandal. Phone sex recording leaked online. Ugh, well, gross. And this is from, this is from, this is really, this is March 29th. So this is not even that long ago. It's a few days ago. So he was a, he's a strong believer in traditional marriage and a vocal opponent of equal rights uh, uh, for same-sex couples. And he's been caught in an extramarital scandal, uh, fairly, uh, further fueled by newly released sexually explicit phone sex recording. Um, I believe that everyone's, you know, sex lives should be private. Um, however... If you are, and again, in a position of power and you're telling other people that they can't exist, then I'm all for uh, letting these things be be heard. All right. So that being said, here's, a, here's another song from Greg Dooley, and it's a cover of Leonard Cohen. This is a Paper Thin Hotel. Yeah. 
And welcome back. I have a positive news story. There's always some positive news stories out there. And this comes from science.mike. Surgeons have completed the first HIV-positive organ transplants. Here's why it matters. And this was written by Jordan Taylor. And this is from March 31st. Every year, around 17,000 kidney transplants and 6,000 liver transplants are performed in the U.S. But there was something special about two recent kidney and liver transplants performed at Johns Hopkins University Medical Center. The kidney and liver came from a diseased donor with HIV, and they were transplanted into patients who also have HIV. They're the first HIV-positive organ transplants since since the 2013 repeal of an outdated law banning people with HIV from donating their organs. This is an unbelievably exciting day for our hospital and our team, but more importantly, for patients living with both HIV and end-stage organ disease. Dr. Dory L. Sigiv, professor of surgery at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, said in a statement, For these individuals, this could mean a new chance at life. Decades in the making. In 1988, an amendment to the National Organ Transplant Act banned people with HIV from donating their organs. HIV-positive organs can save around 1,000 patients with both HIV and organ failure each year, according to the Human Rights Campaign. But because of the amendment, the law forced those life-saving organs to go to waste. We were throwing away organs that were infected with HIV that could be used to help people with HIV because of this antiquated law, Sagev told NPR in February. 25 years later, things finally changed. The HIV Organ Policy Equity Act, or HOPE Act, was passed in 2013, allowing for HIV-positive organs to be transplanted into patients with HIV. In February, Johns Hopkins announced it would be the first U.S. hospital to perform this type of transplant. Now, those first transplants are completed, and the recipients are doing well, according to the LA Times. The kidney recipient, who became infected with HIV 30 years ago, is reportedly already home. The liver recipient, who had HIV for 25 years, is still in the hospital, but the new liver is functioning extremely well, said Dr. Christine Durand, an infectious disease specialist at Johns Hopkins, according to the LA Times. We're encouraged by these first transplants, Durand said. So is the HIV community. I think it's great news. I think it's actually long overdue, Mark Milano, an HIV educator at ACRIA, said over the phone on Thursday. Milano, a long-term survivor who's been living with HIV for 35 years, will soon turn 60. And like many older adults with HIV, his kidney function is on the decline. Every year, I watch their capacity lessen a little, Milano said. My doctors all say there's a very good chance in the next decade I'll need to go on dialysis. Milano could eventually be in need of a kidney transplant. He would be happy to accept one from a doctor, from a donor with HIV. Getting a new organ is never easy. Organ donation waitlists are long, absurdly long. More than 121,000 people in the U.S. are currently waiting for life-saving organ transplants, according to the American Transplant Foundation. Every day, 22 people die on average because they don't get an organ transplant soon enough. Historically, it's been even harder for people with HIV. For a long time, HIV-infected individuals did not have access to organ transplantation. Dr. Um, Oladipo Olao, medical director at Amida Care, said in a phone interview on Thursday, historically, there were concerns about life expectancy. With With the advent of anti anti retroviral therapy, people with HIV are now able to live as long as people without HIV. Before that, when the average life expectancies were shorter, some people with HIV were told they didn't qualify. It still happens, Milano said, recalling a young HIV-positive man he met last year who died because he couldn't get a lung transplant. The idea that we're not 
worthy of organs because we're going to die pretty soon is old school thinking milano said we should be on the list with everybody else and have access to those things having organs available to him from people with hiv milano said just expands the pool of potential matches it is likely that hiv positive patients on wait lists for liver or kidney will be transplanted faster than the typical waiting time for an hiv negative organ dr amy l friedman chief medical officer and executive vice president uh, at live on ny said in an emailed statement the number of people with hiv in need of organ transplants will only continue to grow according to sharon duke executive director of the aids service center nyc this is a true medical milestone for people living with hiv and aids duke said in an emailed statement as other recent medical advancements are keeping those with hiv and aids living longer transplants are increasingly needed with hiv positive organ transplants, everyone benefits, including people who don't have HIV. Imagine you're HIV negative and you're on a wait list for a new liver, one spot behind a patient with HIV. If the patient ahead of you is now available to accept a liver from an HIV positive donor, it means you can move one spot ahead too. It benefits people with HIV as well as people who don't have HIV in terms of accessing organs, Allo said. The next step, getting people with HIV to register to become organ donors. Any addition to the current pool of donors is extremely valuable and will directly increase the number of lives saved through donation and transplantation, Friedman said. Milano, for one, is excited to, to sign up. I've never been able to check the donor box. I'd love to be able to do that, he said. I love to be able to offer my organs to somebody else. Ha! Huh. So there's something good. There's something positive. And here's something else that's, um, uh, this comes from the Stanford business, and this is from February of 2016, and uh, I feel like most folks I know are overworked, and uh, this will definitely, this definitely speaks to that. Um, how work stress hits minorities and less educated workers the hardest. Uh, researchers analyze workplace health to find in inequalities. This was written by uh, Molly Bludoff and Delicato. Workplace stress can shave years off your life, according to a joint study by Stanford and Harvard researchers. But while these stressors, like job insecurity and high job demands, affect all American workers, they take the biggest toll on minorities and people with less education. The gains in life expectancy over the past 30 years have gone to a relatively small segment of the population, and there's another segment of the population, minorities, where it's gone in the other direction, says Jeffrey Pfeffer, an organizational behaviorist at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Stressful jobs contribute to 120,000 deaths each year and cost U.S. businesses up to $190 billion in healthcare costs. These stressors particularly hurt minorities and low level, with low levels of education who often work in unhealthy environments that can shorten lifespans. Researchers looked at 228 studies examining how 10 workplace stressors affect a person's health and used an algorithm to break down the results based on ethnicity. Workplace stressors had the largest impact on non-Hispanic black men with less than 12 years of education, whose life expectancy decreased about 1.7 years. Non-Hispanic white women with more than one more than 17 years of education were the least impacted, losing 0.3 years from their lives due to workplace stressors. Pfeffer says he decided to study workplace stressors after skyrocketing health care costs kept showing up in the news. The U.S. government spends more on health care per capita than, any, than many other first world countries. And while businesses were focused on coaxing individuals to practice healthier behaviors outside the workplace, he adds, there was no research to show what kind of effect work had on an employee's health. We discovered that a significant fraction of the inequality in health, in health outcomes can be attributed to the fact that the people with less education get sorted into jobs in which they are more likely to face harmful work exposures, Pfeffer says. Workers with less education 
are more likely to take jobs with more workplace stress, such as those involving shift work, experiencing frequent layoffs, or demanding long hours. Occupations requiring more years of education also experience some of the same stressors, but those stressors are unlikely to have the same impact. For example, an employee at a fast food chain has little job security and no job control. A banker, on the other hand, has a high level of control and more job stability. While both the fast food worker and the investment banker may have highly demanding jobs, says the co-author and operations researcher Stefanos Zinios, the banker's is far more secure than the fast food employee. Pay attention to where you work if you have a choice, Zinios adds. It does make a difference. It can cut your life expectancy. Long term, however, there needs to be a shift in how companies treat employees, Pfeffer says. Instead of focusing on changing individual behaviors like exercising more and smoking less, employers should take a hard look at the kinds of workplaces they're providing for employees. Because Americans spend so much time at work, a high-stress environment could push employees toward unhealthy habits, which increase healthcare costs for the company. To prevent adverse health effects among employees, both Xenios and Pfeffer recommend putting time and effort into making the workplace less stressful. Creating a social support network, for example, can help employees better handle stress. Giving a manager more autonomy over tasks can also reduce stress. Although the study is sound, the algorithm does have its limitations, says Joel Goh, an operations researcher at Harvard University. Because the data isn't perfect, the researchers use averages. Instead of differentiating between a fast food employee who is a fry cook and an employee at the same restaurant who is a manager, the health effects were averaged out. He adds, we knew the limitation of this going into it, Go says, but some, having something imperfect is better than having nothing at all. The next step is to use the information to advocate for workers and minority workers in particular, Zeno says, any improvements within the workplace will reduce morality, uh, mortality and benefit the bottom line. If companies are serious about controlling their healthcare costs, they need to work on the problems caused by these adverse exposures, Pfeffer adds. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, yeah, I'll move into the next, the next, the next story, which is an upcoming event. There's a lot of things to be angry about, and there's also a lot of ways to take action. So it's really important just to talk about these things. So this is coming up on April 21st. It's Students Rising Up, and April 21st is a National Student Day of Action to Stop Police Terror. Which side are you on? And this is listed on the the Revcom uh, website, and also this is through the Stop Mass Incarceration Network. Uh, this call was issued by students at San Francisco State University. Join them in this effort. Uh, if you knew that a murderer was living next door, would you do something? What if you witnessed the murder happen? Would you demand for justice then? What if countless people were losing their lives every day at the hands of one notorious gang? We have all seen the videos of the crimes the police commit against humanity, killing people who are running away, have their hands up, are laying on the ground, or doing nothing. People beaten, tased, stomped, choked, and shot to death. If a photo was worth a thousand words, you would assume a video would be worth enough to indict, convict, and send these killer cops to jail. And yet they continue to get away with murder. If you are black or brown, you live under that threat every day of your life. If you don't, you probably know someone who does. There is a genocide happening right under our noses. It is a slow genocide now, but you look at people like Trump and you see how the, this genocide could escalate. The time to fight this is now. We, are, we, the students, are taking a collective stance in opposition to the mass 
murder of men and women from our communities. We have seen the United States government commit genocide against the indigenous peoples of the world, enslave and torture Africans, as well as support and finance global terror through countless wars. What has changed? That's why we, the students, stand up in opposition to the perpetual terror and brutality carried out by the state by the police. The changes that we want to see in the world do not happen by hashtags and Facebook likes. They happen by rising up and fighting for the future you want to make a reality. On Thursday, April 21st, we the students are calling for a national day of action, walkouts, protests, powerful manifestations of resistance on campuses across the country, in which we pose to each other the question, which side are you on? If you are disgusted by the systemic murder of citizens by the state, if you oppose the targeting and disproportionate mass incarceration of black and brown people, you need to be part of this strike and make a statement by standing with your fellow students as well as community members. However, if you feel that these issues do not pertain to you, know this. If they come for people of color, but you are not, then they come for women, but you are not, then they come for the poor, but you are not, who will be left to protest in your name? We as students have a crucial role and responsibility in standing up to stop police terror. 50 years ago, students took up the fight against the war in Vietnam, the black and Chicano liberation struggle, the women's liberation movement, and they helped to rock the system to its foundation. Today, we need to do this even more and go even further. Students always get asked what your major is, what career you want, but how often do we get asked what kind of world you want to live in? Everything in society is telling us to find our place within this messed up system. On Thursday, April 21st, we declare that we refuse to live in a world where law enforcement has a green light to brutalize and murder people. Stop police terror. Which side are you on? So again, this is Thursday, April 21st, and we'll be talking more about this as the date approaches. And this has been posted on the Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash weekly rev. <sighs> so a music break, and then we'll be wrapping up the show with a couple more stories.
Welcome back. As promised, have some more stories. And this goes back into what we're talking about before, uh, I guess, hypocrisy. And uh, this also just deals with the anti-LGBT laws in in North Carolina. And this comes from The Intercept and written by John Schwartz. And this came out on March 28th. Bank of America, Microsoft denounced North Carolina's anti-LGBT law, but fund politicians who passed it. Uh, Bank of America, Lowe's, Microsoft, and American Airlines all have two things in common. They've been, they have strongly criticized North Carolina's new law that prevents local governments from prohibiting discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity, and money from their affiliated political action committees helped put the politicians who passed the law in office. Representatives from Bank of America and Lowe's declined to answer questions from The Intercept about whether they plan to stop contributing to the responsible politicians. American Airlines corporate communications manager stated, uh, we won't discuss future contribu- contributions. Microsoft did not respond to inquiries before publication. The North Carolina law, which has been widely condemned in the business world, as well as by Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, was an initiative of the state's Republican Party, which controls both houses of the state legislature. The bill passed the North Carolina House 83 to 25 and the state Senate uh, 32 to 0. Ugh. After all the Senate Democrats walked out, it was signed into law by Republican Governor Pat McCrory. Charlotte-based Bank of America said last Thursday in response to the law's passage that the company has been steadfast in our commitment to non-discrimination and to our LGBT employees. We support public policies that support non-discrimination. However, Bank of America's PAC has been a consistent, significant contributor to Governor McCrory. Phil Berger, president pro tempore of the state Senate, Tim Moore, speaker of the state House, and the North Carolina Republican Party. The Bank of America PAC's treasurer is Wendy Jamison, who is also Bank of America's senior vice president for public policy. According to data from the National Institute on Money in State Politics, Bank of America's PAC donated $8,000 to McCrory for his losing campaign for governor in 2008, and then gave him another $8,000 in 2012 when he won. Since 2002, it's also given $41,500 to Berger, $13,500 to Moore, and $86,000 to the state Republican Party. Lowe's, also based in North Carolina, said after the bill's passage that it opposes any measure in any state that would encourage or allow discrimination. Nonetheless, its PAC, whose treasurer is Cindy Rines, assistant treasurer of Lowe's companies, has donated heavily to the same politicians. Lowe's PAC gave $8,000 to McCrory for his 2008 gubernatorial... Oh, gosh. Let's see who it is. Hello? Hello? Uh, yes, hello. I'm sorry, your voice is super faint. I can barely hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, hello. Hi. Um, I'm calling about uh, your open mic tonight. I was wondering if um, what time it starts and how, how we can sign up. Uh, yeah, if you want to call back in, it starts around 6. If you look online, uh, you can... What's that? Oh, dang it. I, can't, I can't hear you. Um, All right. Um, oh, there you go. I'm going to finish this right now. 
All right. Uh, so Lowe's Pack gave eight thousand dollars to McCrory for his two thousand eight gubernatorial campaign, and another eight thousand dollars when he ran in two thousand twelve. Lowe's has donated fourteen thousand five hundred dollars in recent years to Berger, two thousand to Moore, and sixteen thousand two hundred fifty dollars to the Nash to the North Carolina Republican Party. Microsoft has joined a corporate campaign calling on politicians to abandon or defeat anti-LGBT legislation, and its president, Brad Smith, specifically criticized the North Carolina law on Twitter. And like the political action committees of Bank of America and Lowe's, Microsoft's PAC, run by its managing director for government affairs, Edward Engel, has given to the same anti-LGBT politicians, though somewhat less generously. Since 2008, the Microsoft PAC has given $2,000 to McCrory, $3,000 to Berger, $2,000 to Moore, and $4,000 to the North Carolina Republican Party. Finally, American Airlines has stated that the new law goes against our fundamental belief of equality. The American Airlines PAC gave $2,500 to Berger and $1,000 to Moore for their most recent campaigns in 2014. The money donated by political action committees affiliated with corporations comes from employees and company officials, rather than directly from the corporate treasury. However, PACs exist to serve the corporation's interest and, as is the case with all four corporations here, are generally managed by corporate executives. Thank you to Jonathan Cohen for inspiring this article whose uh, tweet says, how many of the corporations that issue statements against GOP anti-gay trans bills still heavily fund those GOP polls? (sighs) Okay, so it's 1.42. Going to play one more song, and then we'll be out of here and back next week, and we'll have some guests next week. So we're looking forward very much to that. And here's a couple songs.
Alex. Hey, can you tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternative to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby. Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again. And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4AltaCalifornia.com. That's 4AltaCalifornia.com for a non-addictive pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4AltaCalifornia.com. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Yeah, you. You look like the kind of person who has a sense of humor. Oh, is, is the radio talking to me? No, I'm on an internet podcast. Uh, I'm talking to an internet podcast? Don't be silly. It's a one-way form of communication. But I don't want you to miss out on the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2016 from March 2nd through 6th. And you don't have to. You can buy tickets now on universe.com with 24 national and international visiting comedians and 20 local hosts. You won't want to miss a thing. What if I can't be at every show? Don't worry. All shows will be available for free download at mutinyradio.fm until the internet falls apart. Oh, podcast God, I can't wait to listen to all these great comedy shows and everything else that's cool and MutinyRadio.fm before the internet falls apart. You too won't want to miss a bit of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival from March 2nd through 6th, 2016. Buy tickets now. Brought to you by Subliminal SF, PBR, The Eagle SF, Brainwash Cafe, Asiento, and the great people at Alta California Botanicals. Have you heard of Subliminal SF? Visual and auditory mind control. Graphic design, physical merchandise, live music promotions. Go! www.subliminalsf.com 
for the most amazing t-shirts you've ever seen. Graphic design for every need and live music promotion at some of the best bars in San Francisco. That's subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control. Go to subliminalsf.com now. Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe it's a cash cock honey <laughs> Billy Bob you ever want to be funny well my dogs think I'm funny Daryl well I mean you ever want to be like in front of an audience like other than like squirrels dogs and dead persons oh shit from time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's joke workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> The dictionary definition of the adjective eclectic is selecting or choosing from various sources. When Bay Area musician J.D. Buell brings you Morning Train Wednesday, 10 a.m. to noon on Mutiny Radio, that is exactly what he does. Select music from various sources to give you a unique listening experience. Rock, pop, jazz, bluegrass, gospel, funk, reggae, folk, blues, country and western, electronica, soul, disco, rhythm and blues, punk and post-punk come together with music from around the world with Buell's passionate and down-to-earth delivery. 
In an age of personal music delivery systems, J.D. Buell carries on the values of progressive FM radio when a listener could actually have a relationship with a programmer, someone who would create an eclectic musical environment wherein both listener and host find fulfillment. The Morning Train with J.D. Buell, 